Well, I did not plan on having Psalm 24 be this sort of welcome back text for us. Uh, also, side note, just a sidebar, if I cry during the sermon, it's because I haven't seen this many people, uh, and you like to haven't seen this many people in a church gathering for some time, and so it just might happen, and it's going to be awkward, and we're just going to put up with it, but that's okay. Psalm 24 is this perfect welcome back text for us as a church in so many ways, but perhaps primarily because Psalm 24 is a psalm of, of worship, a psalm of worship to the king. To the king. Now, as I thought about kingship and, and this text, I'm reminded of, of coronations. And if you know what coronations are, you know that there are these ceremonies wherein the king or the queen are crowned, and everybody acknowledges them as king or queen. And in film and in literature and in popular culture, there are typically two types of coronations, two types of coronations that we, we notice. Uh, the first is from and again, if you're new or visiting, I make the crown references a lot, and so get ready. Here's the first one. The first type of coronation is from the crown. And if you remember that show on Netflix, uh, you can remember you have um, Handel's Zadok the Priest playing. You know the song? It's very high. I won't, I won't try to sing it. It's, it's not possible. But Zadok the Priest is playing. It's a very solemn moment in Westminster Abbey. People, important people, are gathered there. And you have the crown prince Philip. The crown prince Philip approaches uh, Queen Elizabeth and he bows the knee. He bows the knee, but he bows the knee reluctantly, uh, apprehensively, not wanting to bow the knee. Now, whether that's true or not, who knows, but at least that's how the show portrayed it. We have that kind of coronation. This first kind of coronation speaks, I think, very profoundly to us today. We see in Philip Someone like ourselves. We understand his hesitancy to bow the knee. Who wants a queen? Who wants a king? Who wants authority? We don't search that out. But there's a second type of coronation we find in popular culture. And it's a kind, again, this is my other go-to illustration bank, we find in Tolkien's uh, The Return of the King. Again, if you've read The Return of the King, you know at the end of it, Aragorn is crowned at his coronation, king. He's crowned king. The rightful king has returned to restore what was broken, make right what was made wrong, heal what was hurting. And Tolkien writes this in perhaps one of my most favorite paragraphs in all of literature. He says this, but when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence. For it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. And then Faramir cried, Behold the king! These kinds of coronations give me goosebumps. They fill my heart with joy. I, I long for these kinds of coronations. If you know the story, the party begins, the trumpets blare, the people shout. Two coronations, very different in tone, having played themselves out countless times throughout history. On one hand, who wants a king? And on the other, behold, the king. 
And I think these two coronations perfectly encapsulate our contemporary attitudes towards kingship, or more generally towards authority. On one hand, we despise it. We hate it. The refrain of the book of Judges can just as easily be a refrain for us today when it says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That could be a a modern slogan, could it not? On the other hand, our world, our day, our modern day even is full of stories of a king or a queen or a ruler coming back and making all things right and all things good from the Lion King uh, to Camelot to Robin Hood, uh, even Avengers Endgame with the circle things and they walk through, right? That's an authority of sort returning to make things right. We both despise authority and we long for authority at the very same time. How do we resolve this tension? How do we fix this problem? I want to suggest that in Psalm 24, in Psalm 24, we fix this problem by bearing witness to a third kind of coronation. A third kind of coronation by observing the crowning of a king who both answers our objections to authority and also fulfills our longing for it. If you're taking notes, we're going to unpack Psalm 24 in three stages, three little blocks, if you will. And this comes from the Bible teacher, Derek Kidner. We're going to talk about the all-creating king. We're going to talk about the all-holy king. And then thirdly and finally, we'll talk about the all-victorious king. And so if you have your Bible... Pull it up in physical form or on that app, Psalm 24, verses 1 to 2. Let's read this again for us. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, there's some thought that the occasion for this psalm is David, if you know the story, if you don't, that's fine, David bringing back the Ark of the Covenant, right, the thing from Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant, right, back to Jerusalem, back to God's people, back from the Philistines. And so it's celebrating this moment in Israel's history, but this would have been reenacted over and over and over and over again as part of their worship. They would reenact this moment. This is this psalm. This is how it comes to us. For the Israelites, you see, the ark was a big deal. Inside of it were the law, it was the law given at Sinai, but it also symbolized God's presence among his people. How could we know that we're the special chosen people by God? Well, we have the ark. And now the ark is back and all things are good again. This is probably the happiest day of David's life. It's the happiest day. And now we see that David uses this occasion not to celebrate him bringing back the ark or celebrate his army's might, but to celebrate the Lord, to worship the God as king. This psalm is intended to lead the faithful in worship towards this God who rules and reigns. And so it comes to us through the ages in order that it might do the exact same thing amongst us this morning. That's the purpose of Psalm 24. See, quite controversially, if we really think about it, 
David begins by saying this, the most controversial words you'll ever hear in our day. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world, and listen, Christ City, and those who dwell therein. Let me say that again in case we didn't understand just how controversial or radical this is. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell therein. To whom does all the earth belong? The Lord. To whom should we ascribe the earth's flourishing, its, its beauty, its abundance, everything good, its fullness, the Lord? And to whom do all the inhabitants of this flourishing earth belong? The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And why is this so? Look at verse two. What's the reason? Why does it belong to him? Because he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. All of flourishing creation and all its inhabitants belong to the Lord because he alone is a creator and sustainer. See, there is a logic that David is employing here that would have been typical to the ancient world. The God who creates in the ancient world is the God who is king. The God who creates, who subdues the chaos. You can read Psalms about the Leviathan being subdued. The God who creates and subdues the chaos is the God who is king. This is this logic. And if we leave the Old Testament and go to the New Testament, that back half of your Bible, we find this link between creator and king to be just as strong. And it's applied in ways that are very, very relevant to us today. And so, for example, in Romans 9, in an answer to a rhetorical question that Paul proposes to himself about who God chooses to save, about who God elects, Paul says this in Romans 9, verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And the logic here is God created us. He can do what he wants with us. In 1 Corinthians, to a church who would rather, Paul, not tell them what to do with their bodies. To a church who would rather, Paul, not tell them what to do with their sex lives. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. It belongs to him and the Lord for the body. So here, here's the conclusion. The logic of scripture must become our logic as well this morning. He who creates is he who is king, is he who is Lord. If we are to confess Yahweh as the creator and sustainer of all creation, we must also acknowledge his kingship, his lordship, his rule over us as well. This is true for all people everywhere. But it's especially true for those of you here this morning who call Jesus Lord, who profess to be followers of Christ. See, when you became a follower of Jesus, a, a shift, a, a transition occurred. You moved 
along with the rest of creation, from belonging to God by sheer fact that he made you, to belonging to God in a unique way because now his spirit dwells within you. Again, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. And so in our psalm today, we have a vision of the the pilgrims making their way to a temple on a hill. But now in the new covenant in Christ, we are that temple. Crazy. Now the spirit dwells in us. Keep on reading. You are not your own, Paul says. For you were bought with a price, and so glorify God in your body. In the language of verse 20, if, if you can keep it up there, the language of verse 20 is that of a slave being purchased for a master. It, it's an image that these Corinthians would have been very, very familiar with. See, in the same way a master would buy a slave, Paul's saying that we too have been bought. Once enslaved and servants to this world, now enslaved and servants to Christ. How, he says, you were bought with a price through the blood of the cross of Christ. So all of us, all all of us, all of us, including our physical bodies, now once more are back where we rightfully belong in service to the one who made us, who formed us, who shaped us. And it's worth at this point just stopping, pausing, and doing a bit of inventory ourselves. Do I believe that I belong fundamentally not to myself, but to the Lord? Do we believe as a church that we belong that we exist fundamentally, not for ourselves, but for the Lord. And I think if we believe that everything, and and I really do mean everything, everything would change. We would say things like this. My body is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. My career is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. My house and my home and my nice stuff and my new couch is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. My dreams and hopes and visions for this life, it's, it's the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Do with all these things what you will, O Lord. It's easy to read on a screen on Sunday morning, so hard to live out, so radical to embody. Now, while some of you are are with me, I can also feel it in the room this morning. There is a palpable apprehension to an idea like this. And I I understand. I'm not naive to that. It, It is the exact opposite of what we're told every second of every day. It's the exact opposite of what we eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. See, we are crowned every morning by, by the shows we watch. We are crowned every day by the podcasts we listen to that, that talk about maximizing your life, maximizing your decisions, looking out for you. We're crowned every day by the people we spend time with who celebrate us, who never challenge us, who affirm us all the time. We're crowned every day as lords and rulers of our lives. And here's the apprehension. We do this not just because we don't like authority. The reluctant coronation comes because we've seen bad authority. Wicked authority. Evil authority. Even in the church. 
We're not exempt from this. We've seen kings and authorities and pastors and priests and the list goes on, come and go and leave a wake of destruction in their path. Have we not? Bad authority has made us very weary of any authority and I understand that. But here's the thing about the Lord. If you can just hear this this morning. See, the all-creating king is also the all-holy king, the all-good king. Look back at your Bibles with me. Psalm 24, verses three to six. Again, this question is asked. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. See, in these next three verses, a, a transition occurs. A transition happens. The all-creating king has created order out of chaos. And now... Order and chaos are recast or reformed as good and evil. Order good, chaos evil. This is a common thought in the ancient world. Order good, chaos evil. So our God, the all-creating king, is good or holy because he brings order to that which is chaotic, that which is out of control. And it's with this belief in mind, the goodness of God in mind, as we sang this morning, that David then sort of rightfully asks, who then can stand in this good God's presence? If God is good, I know myself, and I know my failures, who can stand in his presence? Who can approach him? If you can imagine for a moment, again, the ancient world that this comes to us in, you can even close your eyes if you'd like and envision this. We can remember the context of worship this song would have been used in. The, the worshipers would have begun in a lower place and they're slowly making their way up, 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 up to Jerusalem, up, up, up to the temple at the top of the hill, singing as they go and probably these three different movements. And as they make this pilgrimage to the temple, they are doing an examination of sort of their lives, right? They're examining their lives. Have I been upright indeed? Clean hands. Have I been upright in thought? Pure heart. Have I trusted, lifted up my soul in any, to any God or, or idol other than Yahweh? Have, have I trusted in my riches or, or in chariots or, or anything else? Have I spoken truthfully or deceitfully? And so this examination continues. See, the king who owns us, indeed everything, is himself good and holy. And as his treasured possessions, he desires the same for us as well. It's tempting to believe, again, if we're still in that ancient world, it's tempting to believe that the pilgrims, you know, sort of doing this examination as they go, would begin to, to drop off one by one, right? Well, not me. I said that to Bob at the photocopier, so, right? One by one, they would drop off. That the priest would get to the top of the hill and look behind him and see that he's all by himself. That no one else made it. Maybe even the priest himself would, would go off discouraged. But that's not what would have happened. Instead, 
The pilgrims would have ended this section of worship, this section of the liturgy, by proclaiming these words in verse six. And and this verse is really the key to the whole thing. They declare, for such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. What was not true of them by nature would become true of them by worship. What was not true of them by nature? They weren't perfect people. We're not perfect people. Far from it. And the longer you hang out with us, the more you'll discover we're not perfect people. But what they were not by nature, they would become by worship. Indeed, the reason the pilgrims continued was not because they were confident in their righteousness, but because they were desperate to be made righteous. Desperate to be these people which they sing about. Desperate to be made whole, made clean, made new. You know, Psalm 24 and Psalm 15 are very, very similar. Very, very similar psalms. And one commentator writing on Psalm 15 says this, and I think it's true. The qualities described here are those that God creates in a man or woman, not those he finds in him. I don't know about you, that's good news for me. The qualities described here are not those that God finds in a man, but ones that he creates in them. How does this happen? The all-holy king, he joins the procession of the pilgrims. Jesus, the Christ, becomes like us and joins us in our walk up the hill. Envision this with me. And while our actions and thoughts and lips condemn us for the entirety of our pilgrimage, all the way up that hill, our brother with clean hands and a pure heart walks with us. Our brother who always trusts the Father. Not to a throne, not to Westminster Abbey, but to a cross. That is his throne. On the cross, the glory of this king is seen. And now we walk because of his work on the cross, having been declared righteous once and for all in the steps of both our Lord and our brother, Jesus, who is the Christ. See, the God who owns us has bought us through the blood of his son that we might be changed. A changed life begins by recognizing that we are not our own. And if we are not our own, we no longer live to ourselves, our desires, but begin by the Spirit to walk in the way that we were always created to walk. To borrow from Paul and his letter to the church in Colossae, we are to put to death our old way of living, this old way, this old realm, and in its place we put on then as God's chosen ones a whole bunch of things, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So we walk differently as the church, both in-house and out-of-house, as it were. Both amongst each other and in the world. We walk differently. We live 
differently. We become these people as we worship Christ. Christ who defeated the powers of sin and death on the cross. Christ who invites us into this new reality where we can belong to our creator, to our king once more. See, the king who owns us, not only the good king who makes us like him, who makes us good in him, but he's also the king who wins. He's the king who wins. This is point number three, the all-victorious king. Look at verse seven to 10 with me. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. We can imagine one last time. The pilgrims have now made their way to the gate and they stand before the gate and a back and forth takes place between the priest at the top of the gate and the priest down below. Open the gate. The battle's been won. The ark has come home. The king of glory is here. Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? Twice the priest on the gate yells down, to which the priest below responds, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. See, that the king created and sustains all things is the good king who makes us holy as he is holy, this would all mean nothing, 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 if he was not also the all-powerful king who is victorious over all things. This would mean nothing if he was impotent to usher in his reign once and for all. If our coronation is to be of the good variety, the Aragorn, behold the king variety. He must be the rightful heir as creator. He must be good as the holy one, but hear me, Christ city, he must also be victorious over the powers of evil that assail us. The good news this morning is that he is. He is. He is. For the Israelites rehearsing the psalm, the, the language would call them back to their exodus moment, that time where they were in captivity to the Egyptians, crossed over the Red Sea and brought into a new life, a new way of living with Yahweh as their king. They would have sung, perhaps even in their reenactment of this time, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. For us today, we have a Exodus moment as well. A song to sing as well. It's less poetic, but it does a trick nonetheless. And you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, 
By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And hear this, Christ City. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ City, as culturally inappropriate as this sounds, you are the property If you're in Christ, you are the property of the all-victorious king. And after the year we've had, I want to let that sink in for us. No matter what happens in this life, and even looking around this room right now, job loss, isolation, fear, deep, deep sadness, Moments in this past year where you couldn't get out of bed, where life seemed hopeless. No matter what happens in this life, here's the promise of God's word. Christ the King, our brother, has paved a way for us through death and over our great enemy, Satan. Christ has done for us once and for all what we could never do, and we can rest. We can breathe. We can live with confidence because he has done this. Christ has won, and Christ, our warrior king, will bring this victory in full at the end of the age. This is wildly comforting to me today. A few people have asked in this season, Jake, are you excited for this morning? I want you to hear me. I am very excited for this morning. I know you're excited for this morning. And here it comes. But this past year has been for all of us a marathon. And we're tired. And we're coming out of this season with a limp. But here's what's true. Christ rules. Christ reigns. He has not forgotten us. His arm is not too short. He loves us. And the better news still is he loves to use a people with a limp, broken, fragile, temperamental, awkward people like us to make his name great in this city. So Christ City, hear hear the good news this morning. Hear the good news. There's another part of this that we have to talk about. Psalm 24, 7 to 10 is not only wildly comforting, but it is also a battle cry for the church. Again, Derek Kidner. If the earth is his and he is holy, the challenge to the ancient doors is not an exercise in pageantry, but a battle cry for the church. So we are situated in this corner of the city to pray for the lost, to preach the gospel, to serve the marginalized and the forgotten and the neglected and the broken. Why? To paraphrase Paul again in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, we do this to wage warfare according to the divine power given to us by the Spirit to destroy stronghold. We pray, we preach, we serve, so that the fortresses in our neighborhood, in Hastings Sunrise, wherein each individual is lord and judge of their own rule, of their own place, that these fortresses would come crashing down in order that every tongue 
would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come and worship you as the all-creating, all-holy, all-victorious King. Our, our application this morning, Lord, needs to be worship. Not four steps, not three tips and tricks, but worship. And so would you cause us to do that now, both in song, but as we leave this place, in our homes, at our schools, at our campgrounds this summer, would you cause us to be people who worship you in all things? We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.